0: Um, the barrio assemblies and these like you know grassroots neighborhood organizations a lot of these were sponsored by the church what does it mean to say that the christian tradition is internally contradictory and there are antagonisms there um you're always uh being faithful to some aspects and betraying other aspects welcome to the magnificast a podcast about christianity and leftist politics i'm your co-host ho 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 it's holly jolly matt bernico
1: i'm your other co-ho ho ho host uh dean <laughs> detloff with those rosy cheeks and a bowl full of jelly <laughs> just a bowl <laughs> my belly has nothing to do with it just a, a coincidental bowl <laughs> next to me full of jelly you've made it all it's in the fridge and now you've a got a christmas it. tradition <laughs> for anyone who comes by your house <laughs> yeah that's right folks uh over the past few weeks we've been talking about advent you've heard it Three times, and guess what? You're going to hear it a fourth time. We've talked about hope, peace, and joy. And the last uh, theme for this week is love. Christianity has a lot to say about love. We've talked about it a bunch on this podcast in lots of different ways. You got to love God, love your neighbor, do justice, love mercy, walk humbly with your God. God so loved the world. It's it's everywhere. <laughs> you can't escape it. Um and uh the, we've got a whole week to think about it especially and we're going to do it once again.
0: That's right. You're you dear listener, you're probably just ready for that that sweet baby jesus to come popping out any minute and you want to get the gold and the frankincense and the myrrh but i gotta tell you you gotta wait you gotta wait just a little bit longer because it's the love week of advent
1: and uh it's not christmas time yet i'm so sorry we're so close uh the <laughs> the elves are uh, it's crunch time for them they do need the union but in the absence of it they're working so hard um yeah i think uh this is going to be an interesting conversation because just like the other themes that we've done it's really hard to actually talk about love in a way that is meaningful and not cheesy and uh not a betrayal of what you see every single day which is a world that is not very loving at all (laughs) uh so what does it mean to sort of think about this term in the same way that we think about hope and peace and joy you know at the end of the world or when everything looks quite hopeless. Uh, I think it's a good exercise to try to figure out what can we actually salvage out of this big, important Christian theme. Yeah, I think so,
0: too. It is. <laughs> it's difficult. It's difficult not to wander over into like the sentimentality of love or in like, you know, the weird like sexuality part of it. I mean, you know, all of those things are definitely a part of it. But Love is also more than that. We're here on this podcast to tell you about it. (laughs) I think like as I've been, you know, these the Advent themes have been um, it was supposed to be something very easy that we could just kind of line the podcast around. And we've done that for sure. But it is really difficult to take it seriously and think through it in a way that is really rigorous. That doesn't just kind of like, I don't know, (laughs) give yourself over to weird, um, weird sentimentality or like whatever. I mean, I said this a a few episodes ago when we talked about hope Um, It is, I don't know, striking. (laughs) I think we as a culture or maybe just me as a person, I don't know which (laughs) one of them uh, (laughs) have a like really impoverished way of thinking about like our emotions and our, I don't know, sense of being in the world. Um, You know, so things like hope get dialed into very weird consumerist. I don't know, wall signs you hang up and, and think about in weird ways. And I think love is like probably pretty similar, right? It's a, it's really, it's understood in really narrow ways. And well, you should understand them in more expansive ways. Like, I don't know. It's easy for us to get like really obvious things about love. Like, I don't know, kissing or holding hands or getting a hug from your mom (laughs)
1: Those are the three types of love that there are in the world. I think. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Thomas Aquinas. Uh, the, those are the ones he identified in the Big Summa. That's right. They're in there, and I'm
0: gonna I'm gonna write my Summa and say that also petting your cat that's a type of love. And Thomas Aquinas couldn't quite get that one, but that's okay. Yeah,
1: controversial take.
0: well anyways it's just like you know we we have this narrow understanding of love we you know we we kind of think of things like uh, romantic love uh, and like sexuality in in that kind of realm and like you know familial love too is in there but it's really difficult to think about love as an idea that could inform the way that we think and act politically um I think that is actually pretty peculiar. I mean, most Christians would agree that at its core, Christianity is a religion that is in a big way about love. I mean, whether you're a, a Southern Baptist or you're a, a high church traditional Anglican, you probably think that in one way or another, even if you don't do a great job of it. I don't know. I'm not here to judge your life right now about that particular thing but i mean like in 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 all theologies in all christian theologies there's sort of a place and centrality of, of love in that whole conversation and that's really fascinating we don't really think about it enough in in terms of uh politics or in social life um in ways that are more expansive than just like i don't know uh, very narrow things like holding hands. Holding hands is going to be my new stand-in uh, <laughs> for romantic love. Uh, I'm going to really stress how uh, out of my depth I am uh, when it comes to talking about love uh, by doing this that. This good
1: Midwestern repression. That's what you're getting on this podcast. <laughs> that's
0: right. Um, well, anyways, I think most Christians would agree that like love is sort of, sort of central to Christian life. And, and to be a good Christian means somehow acting on that love, right? That's probably a pretty uncontroversial thing. However, here's the twist christians in in the united states at least and i mean most places um completely assent to and are in favor of largely capitalism which is a political economy um that uh is basically antithetical to love in in almost any way you split it um and maybe that's a big hard idea we talked about that a lot in a previous episode that is now one year old um that we did with richard gilman uh he wrote a book called the communism of love and we'll talk about that later in the episode But anyways, go back and listen to that that interview with him if you want to know more about that particular argument. So anyways, in light of all of that, um, in this episode, we're going to talk about um, Christian love and what it might mean for politics if we move past like the sentimentalism of uh, romantic love or familial love or just like holding hands kind of love. Um, Yeah, I don't know, Dean, how's that sound?
1: It sounds good to me. Um, You know, uh, just I don't know why this is like rattling around in my brain, but you said a few minutes ago we have an impoverished idea of love. And for some reason, like I couldn't, my brain got stopped on that like adjective that I've never really thought about before impoverished. And I was like, what if instead we had like a, Bourgeoisized understanding of love, right? (laughs) And if we had a a truly impoverished view of love, maybe it would be like more public, more, uh, more radical, more like willing to get weird or something. Um, But there's this kind of way that like when we live under capitalism, um, those bourgeois ideas of what love is, they turn love into something that is like private or is something that um, is maybe even like instrumentalized for capital. Maybe we'll talk about that later too. The way that love sort of circulates in the weird, gross ways that capitalism operates. Uh, but I think it's important to try to think through um, all those different aspects of love if we want to take it seriously. The, the good stuff, right? The, the exciting stuff, the cool ways that love um, can maybe motivate us if we think about it in a public way to build a better world. But also the ways that love gets in the way of that or um, understandings of love become kind of ideological or they prevent us from thinking really hard about what we actually do have to do, the hard decisions we have to make uh, to build a better world. So all that to say, yes, Matt, it sounds good. Let's talk about love. What's love got to do with it? Um, I can't think of other songs that have love in the title, but I'm sure you can, dear listener. And uh, I'm ready, Matt.
0: (laughs) Okay, cool. Well, okay. On our podcast, when we start talking about politics, we're talking about class struggle. We're talking about political economy. We're talking about how many yards of linen it does take to make a coat. Uh, we're still make trying to one figure one it out. Our, our, best, uh, our best scientists are still on it, and we're not sure yet, but some, someday <laughs> we'll get to the bottom of it. I'm, I'm positive. Um, and that's all cool. I think that is a great way to think about politics. And like, when we're talking about that, that's probably great good let's think about class struggle for sure (laughs) um but there's this like different register of politics i think that um comes in handy when you're talking about things like love as a political idea and um to get there i'm so i'm so sorry but we do have to take a a quick a quick and hopefully painless uh trip down the lane of french philosophy I will not, <laughs> I will, I, I've purposefully underprepared so that I won't go off on a very weird tangent, but Hey, uh, a path
1: that is never quick nor painless. So good luck.
0: <laughs> yeah, exactly. Okay. So when it comes to talking about politics, we're just talking about things like economy, the economy, we're talking about class war, et cetera, all these like kind of big ideas, like these sort of big macro level ideas. Um, but um, when it comes to like, love, we have to think about maybe something more granular about maybe our own types of experience in the world, our own human relationships um, and the ways that we relate to other people. So like, you know, not only are we as individual people, you know, caught up in the flows of global finance capitalism, (laughs) but we also live our lives in ways that reproduce those structures at the at the 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 macro level and, and the molecular level, like the, the smaller, the smaller level, you know, our interpersonal lives. We're, do, we're doing both of them at once. And uh, it's a lot to think about, honestly. So, like, you know, on the one hand, we uh, we're constantly working for like wages in order to pay our bills and, and pay rent and whatever. And in doing so, we're like propping up the entire system of capitalism. I mean, it's not on our shoulders together or something, but it's like, you know, that's generally the function that we're sort of serving within the economy. Um, but also in doing that, we become people whose lives really revolve around things like paying bills and paying our rent, um, where like the primary form of human interaction in our lives is paying other people for things. Um, <laughs> that, when I say it that way, it makes me feel like I'm a, like like a, I'm 12 and this is high kind of moment. But <laughs> <laughs> can I, but I go can get get myself an NFT? Yeah, exactly. Well, I mean, but you you get it though. I mean, like um, we don't usually think of um, (laughs) when when it it comes to like political economy or these big ideas around politics, we're not usually thinking about like our relationships to other people like interpersonally on individual or communal levels. We're usually thinking about like bigger sort of mechanisms at play. But I think that um, what a whole bunch of these like sort of French philosophers uh, would like to point out is that the way that you live your life is actually really important. Uh, not only does it sort of uh, produce and reproduce capitalism, but it also like reproduces a certain type of life and a certain type of like comportment towards the world. Uh, It creates like certain types of desires in ourselves. It uh, creates certain types of relationships with other people and it normalizes all those things and makes them more or less fixed, right? So this is where a whole bunch of weird French Marxists and anarchists come into the picture. I'm only going to name one of them exactly. Um, so in light of all of this, um, these like French Marxists and anarchists thought that like, you know, of course we need to fight, uh, capitalism at these like larger structural levels. Of course, Uh, I think that's fine and good. You got to do it. (laughs) It's so important. They said (laughs) in their books. Um, but just as important (laughs) of all of that was also like changing things on this more molecular level and this like sort of interpersonal or communal level. Right. And there's a lot of qualifications to those types of things. Um, like, like. (laughs) like a book size asterisk to that but like um but but they're both they both end up being really important in in this like particular sort of like 1960s 1970s like french philosophy um you have to fight capitalism at the systemic level but also you have to like kind of like fight the capitalism that you've created in your own body or in your own desire and that becomes really important so here's like one example i think that um always sort of sticks with me um, and um, this is going to be one of the rare occasions that we talk about an anarchist on our podcast. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> we talk about them all the time. Um, a French anarchist who is called Raoul Vanayem, who is one of the, like, I guess, like the prolific member of the Situationists, um, which is sort of like this like French cadre of, I don't know, leftist intellectuals. Guy Debord is the other one, um, but he is, um, I don't know. He's a very similar sort of character, but uh, Vinayam is uh, pretty famous for writing a book called The Revolution of Everyday Life. And it's a great book. I think even if you are, I don't know, the most staunch Marxist, you should read it and it might make you upset or cause, cause you to question my judgment later on. But I think it's a good book. I stand by it. I stand by this recommendation.
1: But um, people I think people who uh, listen to this podcast, maybe they pick it up or maybe not, but Matt has a uh, very strong specifically French and Italian like anarchist left communist uh streak in him, and I really appreciate it as a person who does not have the same thing. so <laughs> I'm gonna say, don't get upset at matt let let Matt uh challenge your uh <laughs> your democratic socialism or Marxism or whatever you got going on. <laughs> yeah, please do. I mean, it's um <laughs> the the sort of like
0: French Italian left communism anarchism thing it's not without problem for sure um there's plenty of room of critique for it but i think there's um some really great ideas within that sort of milieu of work and also i mean you know if nothing else and probably is some interesting and productive disagreements so let me tell you more about this this of an i am guy so he thinks uh, in this book a uh, revolution of everyday life that like that is the battleground of capitalism for most people. I mean, of course, like you you have like these the the larger structures of the political economy that weigh in your life, like debt or whatever <laughs> in your rent. <laughs> Those things are really important, but also like, you know, the thing that you have like a lot of control over is how you act in the world and the type of relationships that you cultivate with other people. So you should also think about that as a particular site for class war. Um, So here's a quote from um, the book Revolution of Everyday Life, and I think it's a good one. People who talk about revolution and class struggle without referring explicitly to everyday life, without understanding what is subversive about love and what is positive in the refusal of such constraints, such people have a corpse in their mouth. I love this. uh, It's a great one-liner. It's a great one-off for sure in the book. But I think there's something really true to it. Um, If you're talking about socialism, if you're talking about class war, if you're talking about politics, but you really have no room in your conversation for love or joy or, um, I don't know, something positive, then, I don't know, you really don't have a lot to say to that conversation. I mean, maybe uh, at some kind of like analytical level you do, but like you have nothing to give to people to give them like hope in the world. Hmm. Um, without talking about love, without talking about human relationships. And I, I stand by it. It's a good, it's a good point.
1: (laughs) Yeah, I think it's a, it's a great point. Um, it reminds me of something I think we said maybe on the hope episode or something where like, yeah, for sure. It's hard to have hope really tough stuff. A hundred percent. That's so true. But at the same time, if you end up in organizing spaces, you're going to have to like find a way to get other people to hope about stuff pretty quick. And I think it's similar with language like love. You know, people get people like spend time, their free time that they have the limited amount of it after they work a full day. They spend that time doing other stuff that is boring because, you know, at the bottom they have somebody that they love and care about, whether it's themselves or a person they have to take care of, at, care of at home or like a person on the other side of the world or whatever. It's like those kinds of love relationships do actually, you know, like that's, that's where everything else kind of springs from. And if you can't maybe tap into that, you're going to like burn out very quickly.
0: Yeah, I think that's right. Um, yeah. I mean, you can, you can talk about, I don't know, the labor theory of value as much as you want, but um, that's probably not going to do it for people. You know, um, <laughs> I, I, I'm, for some people, I'm sure it's great, but, you know, a lot of people need more to really move them to take action. It's, um, yeah, I don't know. There's there's no ladder of engagement up into activist spaces without some kind of feeling of love motivating, I think, or hope or joy <laughs> kind of behind it, right? You have to have some kind of motivation that is uh, beyond just like the analytic of Marxism or something.
1: Yeah, that's what we should have done uh, for Advent this year is like talked about all these themes in the context of organizing or something, maybe next year, who knows? Hindsight is 2021, 20, but, uh, <laughs> I think, uh, just to stick on this theme too, though, the vanayam theme, it's also helpful to recognize the importance of everyday life because in a dialectical way, to use the good Marx term, it reveals things about the structure of capitalism too. Like these aren't, you know, like strictly separate domains. Like, um, there's another, uh, very cool French Belgian, um, communist uh lusa is her name she's a very interesting feminist philosopher uh she wrote a ton of stuff about capitalism and gender and the oppression of women in particular and she draws off of marx and Engels. and it's really interesting because uh she has this way of describing like the household under kind of bourgeois capitalism in this gendered way where our love relationships um end up creating these really gross ways that men and women relate to each other. I mean, she's speaking in the context of a man and a woman being married, but, like, it makes sense. (laughs) She's not just being totally, uh, you know, whatever, heteronormative or whatever. She's trying to describe why heteronormativity is built into capitalism. And the way she describes it is, like, uh, the, the man is the person who goes out into the world and creates culture and also accumulates capital for the home. Even if they're like a working person, that's kind of the, the idea, right? You're going out into the world, you're bringing stuff back into the home, and that's kind of the the circuit. Uh, and the woman stays at home in order to maintain that space so that when the man comes back from, you know, the hard day's work or whatever, he comes back to a place that is like clean and domestically taken care of and so on and so forth. And so the woman also like basically performs this function so that the accumulation of capital can continue to kind of come in and out of the household. And a uh, rigoray is basically like, isn't this an extremely gross way to think about how humans should relate to each other as basically like conduits for capital to circulate through particular like human communities? Like that's a very bad way of organizing ourselves. And obviously it inevitably leads to all kinds of oppression, uh, special oppression for women, but also a degradation of men as well, because that's like a bad way to be in relationship to other people. And for a Rigoré, love is actually a fundamental concept through which we could like really, you know, release ourselves from those ways in which love becomes like part of the, the gross machinery of capitalism. So all that to say, uh, when you interrogate those everyday habits that you have um, or that you learned or that your parents had or whatever, it actually gives you um, as you kind of scale up a really interesting window into other dynamics under capitalism too that kind of play around with love in these these weird ways.
0: Yeah, it's really good actually to bring up like Marxist feminist theorists in, in this conversation because they do a lot of the similar work that like I'm describing in this like sort of like very French way. <laughs> um, but they do it in like ways I think are less pretentious and actually maybe make the point stick even a bit more. Like, yeah, like Luce Grey is, is great. And then like Sylvia Federici does a similar thing in Wages for Housework, kind of bring, bringing to bear like what these, what the like the large... I don't know machinations of capitalism have like on a marriage or on a household or how Mm -hmm. Yeah, the political economy plays out in interpersonal relationships and and prohibits love in a lot of ways Um, So anyways, yeah, I mean I think there's a lot to say um, from that perspective. That's really
1: valuable Yeah Uh, Important stuff.
0: Um, Okay, so French philosophy aside um, There is a very contemporary philosopher who we've had on our show before to talk about love and communism And uh, I guess I want to bring up a few of those points to kind of put into the conversation, because I think they kind of drive um, they drive home, like the the importance of the larger philosophical conversation about like, you know, the importance of everyday life. But also he has a lot to say about love itself. And I think it is been um, pretty impactful in the way that I think about my life, (laughs) um, (laughs) to say the least. So Richard Gilman Opalski, he wrote a book called The Communism of Love that did some, you know, theorizing, It's some philosophy in this sort of area generally. Um, Richard Gillespie is a very cool guy. I like him a lot. Um, I love him a lot. Maybe I'll say that. Um, he <laughs> uh, was my uh, advisor in my master's program and um, got me into a lot of like the weird left communist stuff. Um, it's not weird. It's fine. Anyways. um he has a book that is all about love and communism. And I think the the argument is really ingenious in the book because it draws attention in a pretty provocative way to the ways that capitalism makes us as people. And it forms us into having very bizarre relationships that like probably we don't want, honestly. <laughs> so like capitalism governs what our relationships kind of look like. um, And communism does the opposite. I mean, it also could govern them, but in a different way. So like, for example, you can think of most of the relationships that you probably have in your life. Um, you know, you have friends, for sure. Um, you have a family. Um, I mean, I don't know. Those those relationships might be stressed and twisted in different ways, and that is something to think about for sure, and we can kind of get to it more in a minute. But, like, I don't know, a lot of the relationships in your life with other people are probably along the lines of, like, you know, you have a boss. You have, you have a bank that lends you money. Um, you have... People that you are in debt to, or maybe that are in debt to you. Um, you have a landlord. <laughs> I don't know. You have you have all these kinds of people in your life, um, who um, who you relate to primarily through capitalism. I mean, even maybe people in your life who who are or familial, you know, or people who you um, you are in love with, you still are related to them in ways that are like m- more capitalistic than you might like. I don't know. Mm -hmm. I don't know. Um, It can look a lot of different ways. I mean, human relationships are very complicated, um, but um, in capitalism, uh, the problem is that love is always kind of pushed off to the side. Uh, The the primary types of human relationships are ones that center around exchange value. So love, um, on the other hand, is a different type of organizing your life and a different sort of um, way to understand human relationships, as Richard Gimlapolsky argues is an idea that ends up standing against capitalism like starkly because it's an idea, love, not communism. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> communism too, but love first, is an idea that escapes the orbit of exchange value. And um, I think this is an argument I think is really fascinating and and complicated for sure. I mean, he wrote a big book on it, so I'm not doing it all justice here. But uh, I think it's a fascinating way of thinking about capitalism as, as sort of not being able to contain love or love having to sort of outside of capitalism. Because, um, you know, you you think of all those places in your life where you do genuinely have love for another person, whether it's, you know, you have a child or it's like a a romantic relationship or a friend or a parent or whatever. All of these are types of relationships that like if if they were governed solely by exchange value, it wouldn't really be love. Um, You know, nobody (laughs) nobody goes to their children um and says okay like you owe me rent for for our house i mean how (laughs) would you even how would you even start calculating that right it's like kind of like an impossible idea like um are you going to charge your kids for every single chicken nugget they've ever eaten um are you going to charge them for all the clothes that you've ever bought them i mean it's like it's absurd really when you break it down like that but um in other relationships we we do just that we break it down in these extremely exchange value kinds of ways but love is a way love is a type of relationship with another person that you can't do that to, right? It's a it's a very small type of communism, is what Richard Gilnopolski thinks. Um, our familiar relationships, our, our relationship with our friends, it's a small type of communism that he thinks we could grow to be a bigger way of life. So all that to say, um, our lives are predominantly enforced, informed, and structured by capitalist types of relationships where exchange value is sort of the norm. But um, there are some very small places in our life where love is sort of the modus operandi. And um, and that is where you can find a, a type of communism, um, not in like the grand sort of economic sense, but like in a in a sort of way of living your life. And and that's a type of love he thinks that we ought to practice.
1: Yeah, yeah. Communism in the way that it is. uh An ism based on the commune, right? Or on the commons based on being together as opposed to capitalism, right? A way of being based on capital and the accumulation of capital. Uh, I really like that idea. I think it's so fun um, for Richard to kind of make that connection. And it was really fun to hear him talk more about it on the show, uh, especially because I think, well, maybe it, it ties into that theme we were talking about last week with Joy, where, Okay, maybe it feels sometimes like talking about joy is kind of a betrayal of how bad things are. But in fact, uh, the joy of the poor, as Gustavo Gutierrez put it, is a uh, already a resistance to the powerful because, you know, the powerful don't want people to be able to speak and have parties and have fun, that there's a kind of world of oppression that wants to stamp that out. And I think it's something similar here with love that. Uh, love can be hard to come by, um, especially if you have a, a challenging life and most of us don't have neat and tidy love relationships, whether it's in our families or, or elsewhere. Um, but there are still those kind of moments where, you know, you can maybe hold on to a a moment of love, fleeting or otherwise. And what it, it sort of gives you is a feeling of, you know, belonging or like, I'm with this other person in a meaningful sense, uh, however that might look. And there's something about that that just sort of like, pierces through the ideology of capitalism or all these like commodified relationships. Like you were saying, Matt, it kind of like, um, reminds you that things don't have to be this way because actually they're not always that way. (laughs) Like, uh, capitalism is never so totalizing that it can like crush those natural things that are just a feature of being a human being with other human beings.
0: Yeah, that's exactly right. So, I mean, the point of Richard's book is, is to find those like, um, those enclaves of of communism, those enclaves of love that we share with other people um, and to figure out ways to like make them bigger, to make them stronger, to like have a type of life where we can practice love in a bigger way than just sort of like, you know, a, a limited type of family or a friend group or something. And I think that's extremely compelling, especially when it comes to the Christian side of things, um, <laughs> which we'll we'll get to maybe in a few minutes. Um, but I, I want to say one more thing about his book. Well, it's a very long one more thing. But I, I guess I want to get into this this last section in his book and just talk through it a little bit. Um, so at the very end of his book, he has this um, sort of like uh, con- concluding piece where he breaks down love is against, love is for these two different ideas, and they end up being like um, you know kind of like inversions of one another in some very clever ways. Um, but I, I'm gonna I'm gonna read a few of the love is for things, so maybe we can get an idea of what. What it might look like to practice a type of love that is not um, that is resistant to capitalism that's a, that stands outside of it in, a, in maybe a bigger sense uh, in a political sense. Um, okay, so the first one is that love is for the Gemeinwesen, which Richard is a philosopher, so this is a German word. <laughs> um, it's a it's a good Marxist word too, uh, but it's about this uh, type of community or belonging that you might find yourself in. Um, so love is for the community when we are motivated to come together because the togetherness itself helps us to recognize our being in the world and deeps our existential connection to others. So love is about being in community with other people. Um, the second one is that he, he he writes these out in these kind of axiomatic ways that I think are pretty fun as well. So I'm going to read them. There are seven of them for both, but I'm sorry. Yeah. Read. Again, love is for. Anyways, he says uh, love aims for the supersession of sex. This is to say that every durable being together that supersedes sexual bodily pleasure is for love. <laughs> I like that um, because it's uh, I mean, again, like we think of uh, we think of sex or we think, of. oh, my God, we think of love too narrowly when it comes to like sentimentality, but also we think about it too narrowly when it comes to sex too. Um, you know, sex oftentimes um, precludes love. And also sometimes it goes beyond love. Right. In these different types of ways, but I I like this that the every durable being together that supersedes sexual body pleasure is for love. I'm here for it. Three. Love (laughs) makes value beyond exchange value. So there are, um, you know, in capitalism, the biggest type of value. If you're doing a good job, you're making lots of um, profits through exchange, um, either for, you know, someone's labor or for um, commodity or for capital or whatever. Right. But love um, in in love and these types of relationships, there's a type of value that's beyond money and um, and beyond work. And that's great. (laughs) The best, actually. Um, Love is for your health and for mine. This is a a really fascinating part of the book that it would be cool to talk to uh, talk about more at some point. But um, throughout Richard's work, he has this like really special attention to these like very peculiar but prevalent types of social and psychological illnesses um, that hinge on like the alienation of individuals from communities. Um, so love is about um, bringing people to like good mental health. Um, if you're, you know, <laughs> um, mental health is not something that's always very tricky for sure, as is love, but love is um, not about isolation, right? It's about um, It's about sort of healthy relationships within a community. Uh, The fifth one is that love is for radical equality and communist inclusion against the exclusive hierarchies of white supremacy, nationalism, and sexism, all of which are concerned with defending unequal and exclusive powers. So love can't be (laughs) you can't have love uh, alongside these other types of hierarchies that exclude some people from um, from power, from being, from becoming a big deal. Um, six is that love is for the creation of precarious little communes, which are increasingly necessary in a liquid world defined by chaos and insecurity. Um, the, the word precarious also plays a pretty central part in Richard's, uh, work overall, but it's, there's a lot more to go into there. But anyways, there's a sense of, uh, you know, where you create solidarity with, um, comrades where you, um, you have a community of people who are willing to fight with you to stand with you against, um, against the injustices of the world, against the chaos of the world. And there's love in that. And then he says, at the social level, love seeks the abolition of all alienation. Um, Which I think is a really powerful way to put it. Um, It's not about easing alienation. It's not about finding ways to make people less alienated. It's about a social system that is completely abolished the idea of alienation, that some people have to be held apart, or some people can't experience their full um, sense of self or their full type of becoming. That people have to sometime, somehow like, uh, you know, give themselves piecemeal, but not not in whole. And uh, I think it's pretty powerful. Some pretty powerful ideas about love in general. But you can see kind of like thinking about love in, in these ways, um, it ends up being something that is like, you know, you can't have these things. You can't have a society without alienation. You can't have a, so- a society with, um, with radical equality. You can't have a society, um, you know of togetherness of belonging with exchange value. These ideas are, um, you know, they're mutually exclusive.
1: Yeah, for sure. And contained in all these love is for, as, as you, as you said, are these kind of natural inversions, right? That love is also against all kinds of other stuff, um, uh, against, uh, alienation, right. Or like, uh, against that kind of exclusivity. Like it's important to see love as, um, uh, I think like it's easy for us to think of love as a uh, a pacifier, right? <laughs> or the thing that kind of chills everything out. Um, we can talk more about that in a minute because I think Christians have a particular problem with that sort of thing. Yeah. But uh, love is active both in a sort of positive and negative direction, right? It's active in trying to build some stuff up and it's active in trying to get rid of some stuff too.
0: Yeah, that's exactly right. Well. Um, that's what, that's just, that's just one, um, Marxist philosopher's take on love. And I think he's right. Um, but anyways, like you said, Dean, Christians have a lot of weird ideas about love, um, in a lot of ways that, I, I mean, you know, I think maybe some better, some worse, um, but also some ways that the idea of love becomes very strange and kind of warped, uh, and problematic in, in some ways, maybe not very loving at all, actually. So I don't know. Do you want to talk about Christian love?
1: Yeah, for sure. Uh, Anytime you say the word Christian love, um, immediately my brain thinks of Herbert McCabe's classic essay, The Class Struggle in Christian Love. We've talked about it a bunch in this podcast, but it's been kind of a while since we've talked about it. And it is always worth rereading. It's an essay that I think was like passed around in Christian love circles like four or five years ago, maybe in a pretty big way. And uh, always deserves to be reread. Um, it's a it's hosted for free right now at um, the Bias. They have a um, I don't know a website where you can read it. Anyway, uh, it's a really good piece. Herbert McCabe is a Dominican priest. Um, that is, he he belongs to the Order of Preachers. <laughs> He's not from the Dominican Republic. He is Irish. Uh, anyway, that's neither here nor there. He's a good priest, and he had a lot of interesting things to say about uh, Marxism and Christianity and theology in his day. And this essay is, I think, a really good like summation of uh, of those themes: the class struggle and Christian love. Um, the whole essay is worth reading. I'm only going to pull out two kind of bits of it and basically encourage you to read the rest of it because the whole essay delves into the theme, obviously. But the first thing I want to pull out is uh, McCabe talking about love kind of as like an ideology or as a way that uh, Christians in particular use love to sidestep things like class struggle. So McCabe says this. There are, it seems to me, only two available attitudes in the face of the class war. You can either try to go back to a time before it started. You can wish that capitalism had never occurred And you can imagine you are engaged in building a non-capitalist, non-antagonistic world. Or else, faced with the fact of the class war, you can try to win it. The first of these attitudes has too often been adopted by Christians faced with capitalism. They construct an imaginary ideal Christian social order in which class antagonisms will not exist because everybody will love everyone. Whereas, of course, people will only in a practical sense love each other when class antagonisms have ceased. Uh, I think... I don't know, like, there are so many things that come to mind for me when I read a passage like this or, like, so many experiences in my own life uh, of love being used in this ideological way that McCabe is talking about. Mm -hmm. I think it comes out in a Catholic way in particular, and McCabe is obviously thinking about that uh, specifically. So you could see it in certain expressions of Catholic social teaching, for example, where there's this idea of, like, class harmony if everybody kind of loves each other um you know the working class and the the ruling class will sort of just live together in i don't know some kind of mysterious peace (laughs) or something uh you see this in evangelicalism i think in other forms of protestantism where love functions as this thing that uh stands in for all antagonisms and it brushes away any kind of real conflict right like oh, you have a problem with this particular person, you must not be loving them enough or loving them in the right way or loving God enough, right? Love becomes this kind of really weird, um, like, weaponized term that actually uh, prevents any kind of real um, dealing with, like, issues, whether they're psychological or political or, or otherwise. And I think that's a really important thing to point out, that Christians often hide behind love or we use love as an excuse for not really admitting what's going on.
0: Yeah, I think that makes sense. I mean, there's even a sense of that in some strains of Christian pacifism, like the very immature kinds that we talked about a few weeks back, um, where, you know, loving your enemy or being like extremely like a sermon on the Mount kind of Christian or whatever means like, um, loving someone, uh, but respecting their dignity so much that you would never really act against them in any way. Um, And, you know, ends up being really problematic because it makes you sort of like paralyzed in the face of real, real injustice and and not really willing to act out in love of other people, you know, to to be sort of like loving your enemy too much or something or loving them in a (laughs) way that makes you a passive person. Loving your enemy too much would mean, uh, you know, fighting for the abolition of the systems that make them do bad things. But um, but I guess you know what I mean. Like, uh, there's a type of yeah. uh, of love as like weird shield to hide behind in Christian pacifism as well,
1: for sure. And I think it's important too the the kind of follow up that McCabe has at the end of this paragraph that people will only, in a practical sense, love each other when class antagonisms have ceased. You know, there's another famous passage in Paulo Freire's Pedagogy of the Oppressed where he says that uh, to really love the oppressor means to liberate the oppressed. And the oppressor will never experience that feeling as love. They will always experience it rightly, I guess, as having their privilege taken away and their power taken away. But they, by virtue of being in the, the space of the oppressor, are so dehumanized that they're also not living lives to the full either that you're it's like a weird thing to be like i'm doing this for your own good you know like i'm i'm liberating you from your own uh toxic kind of um position of power in society or something like that um and uh i was thinking about this theme recently because uh emily and i are watching succession which is a tv show about rich people being mean to each other And it's really interesting because it's like a family drama. I read a a guardian article. I think it was recently from a, a psychotherapist who works with like the super rich. And he was like, yeah, it is exactly like this. Like nobody trusts each other. Everybody is miserable. Um, There are no consequences for anything that you do. So you inevitably treat people badly and then you like get treated badly, um, maybe by other rich people, but not by like people underneath you. It basically like wealth renders you incapable of having relationships to people that are not commodified in some way. Right? Like uh, that's no way to live. Um, And all you have to do is like look at Elon Musk's Twitter account to be like, yeah, that guy is suffering from a pretty severe lack of like authentic love relationships, (laughs) you know? And like, there's something to that, I think, that if you really want to put love into action, that means, uh, you know, really transforming society in such a way that class antagonisms don't exist. And there's not at least that barrier to love. There will be many other barriers to love, of course, but uh, not that one in particular.
0: Yeah. You know, it's a, it's such a hard kind of line to walk, especially when it comes to things like class war, like people like Elon Musk. um, you know, you, to exercise love towards him is exactly to liberate him of the things that make him, you know, the, the conditions that make him so awful. I think that makes a lot of sense. But it's so hard um, to be motivated from a place of love in types of activism. I mean, even when it comes to like, I don't know, even going on strike or whatever, like your bosses, <laughs> your boss is like uh, waging a type of warfare against you when they're not going to pay you more or whatever. But to come back from a place of love is such a hard thing to do. But. But to frame it in that way, it makes your activism a little bit different, different, not not in the sense that it would make it uh, more friendly or something necessarily, but that it's coming from a different sort of position that, you know, it's not that like you want uh, some kind of like bloody violent situation, but it's like you really want the best things for all people. But like there are some people who are going to be standing in your way and you have to you have to fight back. Right. There's no really other way around it.
1: Yeah, and also love, when you think about it in that way, I think it does also change your relationship to the struggle, right? Yeah. Like, um, McCabe talks about this more in the essay, too. But, like, what does it mean to really love your class enemy, especially when they are like literally maybe starving your family, right? Or like threatening to take away your health care or whatever the case may be? Um, how do you sort of put love into action in in that kind of way? And I think it's exactly right that, like, Christians make the mistake often of saying, if you really love in that situation, it means just kind of taking the lumps and, like, being like, that's fine with me, I guess. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> it's like, uh, on the contrary, it means, I think it's it's a real spiritual discipline to recognize that, like, the legitimate form of kind of class hatred doesn't end up like consuming you into some other kind of deeper spiritual hatred. And, you know, that that I think uh, comes out even in revolutionary situations. Like I remember when we had um, Margaret Randall on the show and she was telling us about the Sandinista revolution. We asked her, what do you think that Christianity contributed to that revolution? And the one example she gave was The fact that uh, the Sandinistas didn't execute all the political prisoners after the Civil War, because for them, um, that kind of uh, new revolutionary society was going to be based on a vision of Christian love or or forgiveness. And, you know, that's a huge deal. It doesn't mean that you don't have the Revolutionary War necessarily, but like it means that the way you kind of... uh, interact with that, the kind of ethical ground from which you act and and so on like that is going to be different. And I think that is also a a huge piece of love that like, it does sort of uh, change the tenor of the struggle in important ways.
0: Yeah, I agree. I mean, I think that I mean, not only do we lack, okay, again, maybe, maybe just me, I don't know. Not only do (laughs) we in the uh, singular I sort of sense lack the, the royal we, yeah, the royal we not only do we lack the um, um, like emotional depth to really understand love, but we probably also lack the emotional depth to really understand hatred as well. Um, I don't know, man, like really, like really hating somebody uh, in in the way that you're talking about, right. Where it can be very consuming can really mess you up. I mean, just as bad as like capitalism can mess you up. Right. (laughs) Like, I mean, they Mm -mm. go together probably in a lot of ways, but all, all of it to say, like, um, uh, hatred, and like, I, I guess if if the focus is on, like, figuring out how um, different sort of, like, large structures force us to live in the world and, like, you know, take up different types of practices or, like, um, act differently towards people or cultivate different types of relationships, you should probably think about the ways that, like, hatred also does that to you. Um, mm-hmm. And it's like, a, you know, it's a commitment that probably is not healthy for you as an individual person if you're, like, really... Someone who's invested in, I don't know, fighting for, you know, the the poor or the least of these or, or however you want to frame it, the working class.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Or even thinking about, like, exhortations to pray for your enemies, for instance, or something like that. Like, I think about that kind of thing all the time, especially in the context of being in, like, a Christian social movement. <laughs> yeah. Like, how do I pray for, like, mining executives who are literally destroying human beings and, like, the planet and everything else? Right. Like. The prayers that I can pray in good conscience for those individuals are not like I hope that they sleep well. Uh <laughs> I the hope prayers they fall are hole. <laughs> <laughs> well, sometimes there's a biblical precedent for that. <laughs> sure. Uh but the prayers are usually more something like, you know, praying with a, a sort of naive hope. Uh, that these individuals finally have their conscience pricked to understand the destruction that they're doing and they have like a genuine repentance like whether that happens or not is like outside of my control obviously but I think that having that kind of prayer does also orient me differently toward the the action right toward like collecting petition signatures or whatever it might be Um, trying to pray that uh, these individuals will be liberated from their ability to like uh, oversee a brutal extractive industry. Like, those are prayers that I can pray in good conscience because I do actually like hope they come true and it doesn't feel like a betrayal of, you know, working on behalf of the oppressed or with the oppressed or whatever it might be.
0: Yeah, I think that makes sense. I mean, it's a, <laughs> um, I don't know, uh, what you pray for maybe is, maybe is like a weird and alienating thing to talk about for some people that listen to our podcast. And like, if you're a person who is, uh, I don't know, dealing with, of lots of spiritual trauma like i get it for sure but like it is a, a good place to be very introspective when you're thinking about like um i don't know think about what type of person that you are and like how like what structures have made you that way i mean what you're praying for like what do you really hope beyond hope um or like you know what you desire <laughs> you know to really happen it's a great place to be very introspective and think about how you're talking about those things um Mm-hmm. You, you can quickly uh speaking from personal experience you can see how much love you do lack in your whole life that's
1: for sure <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah definitely yeah the uh the jesuit sort of examine at the end of the day where you you know process what you've done that day and stuff can be quite a, a humbling exercise for sure especially especially when you're thinking about love um Okay, so that's the ideological side, right? Love can become this thing that distracts us from the struggle, and then there's a kind of more authentic love that pulls us into the struggle. And I'll just, uh, I said I was gonna read two pieces. We're kind of already talking about it, but I will pull out this other bit from uh, McCabe where he talks about that latter side. So he also says, It is a simple piece of right wing lying that those who carry on the struggle are motivated by pride and greed, envy and aggression. Love McCabe. He's got that good. That good, clear um, way of writing. Real revolutionaries are loving, kind, gentle, calm, unprovoked to anger. They don't hit back when someone strikes them. They do not insist on their own way. They endure all things. They are extremely dangerous. It is not the revolution, but the capitalist competitive process that is explicitly and unashamedly powered by greed and aggression. The Christian demand for love and peace is precisely what motivates us to take part in the class struggle. But more than that, the gospel of love and in particular, the Sermon on the Mount provides us with the appropriate revolutionary discipline for effective action. Uh, And I love thinking about love in that way, in particular, that like it's a kind of um, it's a revolutionary discipline, right? Like we're just saying, it's a it's like a regulative disposition or something like you you start thinking about love and that really changes the way that you might interact with, let's say a person in an organizing space that you do not get along with. And there are many of them if you organize long enough, right? Or like, how do you deal with a conflict between two people who are trying to get the same thing done? Uh, How do you uh, really sustain a movement that is made up of lots of people from different backgrounds, different walks of life, totally different experiences, Um, the idea that love can be a, a tool, uh, in trying to become a a genuinely effective person trying to make change, I think is a a really important, um, point in all of that.
0: Yeah, I think so too. Um, I appreciate Herbert McCabe so much. Um, he really just lays it out on the line there though, that like (laughs) Christian love means like you really have to do something, (laughs) you know?
1: Yeah, right.
0: I'm all about it. Um, I'm all about it. And also, um, I don't know. It's also interesting, too. I think the the thing about revolutionaries, real revolutionaries, that is being loving, kind, gentle and calm. Um, I mean, I don't know. I don't know any like guerrilla fighters right now. (laughs) It'd be cool if I did, I guess. (laughs) But the people who I do know who are like in movement spaces and who are activists, I think that does. Even if they're not religious, I think that kind of does, um, you know, those uh, adjectives definitely do describe them as people. Mm. Um, Mm -hmm. There's there's a. I don't know. You use the word regulative. And I I don't know if that's quite right in some ways, but in the other ways, I don't know. It does seem right (laughs) that like in (laughs) uh, in movement spaces, like in activist spaces, when you're really fighting for something, you have to be super hard nosed about things. And you can't uh, you can't let anything slide. Right. And uh, being, uh, you know, finding a a way to carry yourself into those spaces where you're not going to uh, you're not going to lose, first of all. And then also you're not going <laughs> to, like, self-sabotage or let somebody else sabotage yourself is, like, such a big piece of it. Um, mm-hmm. And having – uh, but, but parsing out a real evolutionary, somebody who's loving, kind, gentle, and calm, I think really makes a lot of sense in, in that aspect. Even if you're not religious. I don't know. I think there's something about, like, the formative experience of fighting for other people and, like, feeling that type of love, even if you don't call it that, that maybe just, like, mm-hmm. kind of forms you into that person.
1: Yeah, for sure. And, uh, and even fighting for those people in your immediate vicinity on those kind of immediate demands and then also scaling that up to the social desire to have uh, a change for every human being. Like I always think about uh, for all the faults of, um, I don't know, the kind of Medicare for all campaign and, and language, and I think there are many of them. <laughs> Nevertheless, one of the really good things that came out of it, I think, is um the The rhetoric that was like we're not just fighting for uh socialized or public health care for like just union workers or for just Democrats or just people who will vote for it. We're fighting for it for every single human being, whether they want it or not that like love is actually the kind of thing that's like I don't care if you keep voting against your own interests. I still want you to be able to see a doctor for free like. That's a an important way of, um, you know, understanding what you're really fighting for, which is a, a world for everybody, um, even if they are extremely annoying and like <laughs> trying to put you on a path <laughs> to to misery or whatever.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think that's right. Um, you know, even uh, even Joe Manchin, who is a, a big, giant, <laughs> yeah. uh, mean, mean guy should have health. Don't mention it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um yeah, I mean it it does take a certain type of spiritual discipline I think to be able to say that without like any type of irony or whatever but uh you have to ex- you have to really express a type of love and and recognition that um no inequality is okay in love. So, I don't know. Yeah. It's hard. A hard thing to learn and something I'm probably not good at even, but <laughs> but I know that it's probably true.
1: <laughs> yeah. Uh well, At the end, as we come to the end here, you know, we're talking about some like dissident figures here, right? People on the left, um, Herbert McCabe, uh, a priest in good standing, but also a bit of a wild card. Um, I always like to wrap this kind of discussion up also with uh, a good quote from some good Catholic bishops, because you should take them when you can get them, (laughs) I think is my philosophy. And uh, there are some really amazing uh, things said about love by bishops in Latin America, especially And there's probably a ton of places that you could find that are better quotes than these, but these are the two that came to mind for me. Um, One is a quote from the document of the Latin American bishops at Medellin in 1968, which uh, was an extremely formative um, conference for liberation theology in particular. It's a really fascinating document um, full of interesting contradictions, but it was a kind of a moment when like the Latin American bishops were trying to really engage the social realities of an extremely underdeveloped um, continent. And in that document, they have a really interesting reflection on love where they say, love is the fundamental law of human perfection and therefore of the transformation of the world. It, uh, is not the only, sorry, let me back up. Love The fundamental law of human perfection and therefore of the transformation of the world is not only the greatest commandment of the Lord, it is also the dynamism which ought to motivate Christians to realize justice in the world, having truth as a foundation and liberty as their sign. What a great bishop's way of talking. Uh, But uh, in, uh, in that particular bishop's conference, the Latin American bishop's kind of inaugurated a tradition of bishops being willing to engage in a progressive way in the political realities. And the story is very complicated and there's uh, advances and setbacks throughout it, but it really comes to a head, I think in another Bishop's statement in 1979 in Nicaragua. So, you know, we've been talking a little bit about Nicaragua just here and there on this podcast. Uh, And, the the way that the church related to the Sandinista Revolution was complicated, but what's so fascinating is that by the end of it, the bishops kind of saw the writing on the wall, I guess, and they released a statement that was uh, basically articulating their specific endorsement of socialism explicitly in Nicaragua. It's an amazing document. I still kind of can't believe that it happened, um, but in it, building on uh, the Medellin tradition. And then also another conference that happened at Puebla, Mexico. Um, They uh, kind of followed this theme a little further. So they said, in our commitment to help the poor and to fight against social injustice, our faith becomes truly productive for others as well as for ourselves. By acting as Christians, we become Christians. Without such solidarity, our announcement of the good news is but an empty phrase. An evangelical movement of liberation implies a commitment to the liberation of our people. In the words of the bishops at Puebla, Confronted with the realities that are part of our lives today, we must learn from the gospel that in Latin America, we cannot truly love our fellow beings, and hence God, unless we commit ourselves on the personal level and on the structural level as well. After a long and patient wait, our people have committed themselves to the struggle for their full and total liberation. Uh, Extremely cool ringing endorsement of uh, the Sandinista Revolution. But it really hinges on that question of love, right? Uh, The bishops of Latin America said that uh, we can't really love other people um, unless we commit ourselves in this personal and structural way. And I think it's actually a really amazing thing that, at least in the Catholic tradition, but not exclusively, of course, there is a way for Christians to think about love that scales up to this uh, structural level. What does it mean to think about the structural conditions that make love possible or impossible and how can Christians get involved? Um, Just the cool thing that like, you know, this isn't a completely marginal or like radical opinion or like way of looking at love, but it's actually like, there's something kind of in the beating heart of Christianity that encourages us to, uh, to make love more public in that way.
0: There you go, folks. We've done it on this podcast. We talked about French philosophy. We talked about contemporary philosophy. We talked about liberation theology and that's great. Um, so I think at our concluding point here, we can all agree that there are four types of love. There's holding hands. There is kissing. There's hugging your mom. Oh, there's sorry, five types of love. There's petting your cat. And then there's communism. And that's it. So Right. That's right. Um, we've arrived here kind of understanding <laughs> more about what this season of Advent
1: is all about. Uh, communism at the end of the day. It's great. It's great. We've done it again. And Matt, you know what? I'll say it on this podcast in front of God and everybody. I love you. I love you too. Thanks for listening to the Magnificast. If you like what you heard, you can support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash the Magnificast. We do another podcast there most of the time called The Lock-In. It's a bit sillier, goofier. There's some current events stuff going on there. There's a Discord you can get involved with with lots of really good folks sharing things all the time. We're talking about Um, country music today,
0: and I was like, um, I was feeling alienated from the conversation. But then I listened to the recommendation and it was great. So that's cool.
1: That's right. Uh, from country music to um, what kind of mixing board your church uses on a Sunday, I bet. Uh, you can really get it all over there in the Discord. It's, it's great. Um, our music is by Amaria Armstrong. Our outro is by The Illogical Spoon. And uh, why don't you go ahead and have a great Christmas. Uh-huh. Keep your hoods up And you stay up late In
0: Jackson You Keep your hoods up where well, you keep
1: your hoods up And you stay up late Oh, don't mind A cold night But we might mind If you leave too soon So come on now It's still early least I would have.